0: adding my good morning to you all. It's great to be with you in this space. And shout out to those joining uh, from the live stream. And uh, yeah, everyone's giving me a shout out. Thanks for cueing that, Scott. Um, we are continuing today in 1 John with a series of sermons we're calling Lessons in Love. And full disclosure, the title was partially inspired by a 1987 song by a band called Level 42, called Lessons in Love. Are there two people in the room that can bear witness to what that song is even all about? Just me. Great. (laughs) Go check it out. It's on YouTubes. So, we did a quiz last week. I thought that I may try another one this week, because everyone's really into quizzes these days, just like Level 42. Um, Does anyone remember the primary love lessons in this little book? There's three of them, and they kind of follow in succession. And the first one is God is love. I've already given you one-third of the answers. Does anyone know what the next one is? God is love and, and light is true. The second one is that we see this most clearly in Jesus. And the third is that in Christ, we become God's love. You all passed with 100% just by being here. So thank you. We're picking it up today in 1 John chapter 2, verses 3 to 11. So let's hear that text uh, together now. We know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. Whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar. And the truth is not in that person. But if anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in them. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. Dear friends, I am not writing you a new command, but an old one, which you have had since the beginning. The old command is, this old command is the message you have heard. Yet I am writing you a new command. Its truth is seen in him and in you because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates a brother or sister is still in the darkness. Anyone who loves their brother and sister lives in the light and there is nothing in them to make them stumble. But anyone who hates a brother or sister is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. They do not know where they are going because the darkness has blinded them. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. So if you were with us last week, some of these themes might sound familiar. And recall that's what's happening in this community is confusion and conflict around what's most important. And some key influencer types are suggesting things that don't line up with what this Jesus community has been hearing from the beginning. So John keeps addressing these claims of his opponents, and to some degree that continues here. Also recurring are the images of light and darkness. The difference here, though, in our text today is that the teaching is more directed towards John's readers than his opponents, He's offering wisdom that's more about what to do and how to live than about what not to do. So I invite us as we dive in to look for these things. And in the various sections we'll be looking at, I want to offer some connections. So verse 3 begins with this, just comes right out of the gate. We know that we have come to know him. That word know is repeated quite a bit as well. And knowledge of God was a huge theme in the ancient world especially for a popular group of religions known as the Gnostics. From the Greek word gnosis, simply meaning knowledge. And for some Gnostics, knowledge of God had to do with a transcendent experience, a direct vision of the divine. For others, it meant knowing esoteric myths that were sometimes transmitted through visions, and that, they thought, conferred salvation to those who got one of those uh, special visions. In both cases, for Gnostics, knowledge was only about having privileged insider information on religious attainment and had almost nothing to do with how one lived their life. Other groups had other ideas. According to the Pharisees, knowing God was about believing the right things. It was about religious correctness. Can anyone think of who might be the most famous example in the New Testament of a religious correctness man. Any thoughts? Shout it out if you know. Saul, Saul said the keynote person who's seen my manuscript all morning. Um, bang on, Heather. Yep, Paul, who was formerly Saul. We're talking about someone who is even willing to kill people to remain loyal to the purity of his code. But thanks be to God, Paul was converted, deeply so. And he made the migration from religious correctness to love. So how does our text answer the question? We've heard from the Gnostics. We've heard from the Pharisees, of which Saul was a preeminent one. What does John say? It says, we know that we have come to know God if we keep his commands. Simple, right? The question is, which commands? All of them? And this is another new theme in the development of John's letter. If you're like me, when you hear the word commands, you might think of the Ten Commandments. And for some of us, that's going to harken us back in our imaginations to Moses holding giant stone tablets and long hair flying around in fierce wind. Others may think of an antique signboard with old-style lettering hanging on the church wall as a constant warning to anyone thinking about breaking them, or... A cheerful combination of both, as in this little fun image that I found on the internets. Now, we might wonder why a Christian writer is talking about commandments and our responsibility to keep them. Haven't we just been told we're forgiven? Isn't the point of the New Testament that we're free from the law? Well, yes and no. The commandments were kind of like an advanced signpost, a sketching out at long range of what human flourishing looks like. The reason they scared a lot of people is that they realized they couldn't and didn't keep them. But still, they remained, pointing forward to God's age to come. And now, here's the good news. We found this out in the opening of 1 John. God's coming day has now arrived, rushing from the future to meet us in our present, in the person of Jesus himself. And it's in him that we fully discover the reality to which the commandments pointed. But it doesn't look like we might have imagined. I mean, for John, for Paul, and above all for Jesus, the commandments are summed up in one word, love. One writer said it this way, the life of God's new age, capital L, that is Jesus, is revealed as the love of God's new age. All other commandments, the detail of what to do, and not to do, are the outflowing of this love, the love which has been newly revealed in Jesus, the love which God now intends should be revealed in and through all those who follow Jesus. And our text says it a lot more simply. It says this, this is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him, that that is, whoever claims to have intimate knowledge of God, must live as Jesus did. So, I mentioned connections, and I think what we see in these opening verses is a clear connection between knowing and living. So keep your eyes open for John's epistemology in this letter, for his theory of knowledge. Watch for this phrase, this is how we know. It comes up several times as we keep journeying through. Speaking of, a little sidebar, there's a gorgeous song by Ron Sexsmith called This Is How I Know more recent than 1987, and it's been my, in my head all week. For, for those so inclined, check it out. We so often assume that knowing is something that happens exclusively in our heads. I point to my head when I say knowing, right? But in Christian theology, it's almost always linked to an embodied practice and action, an embodiment we see most clearly in the life of Jesus, whom we are called to follow and pattern our lives after, which is a tall order. Last week, we also talked about human beings being made in the image of God, that we are fundamentally beloved, that we're united in God simply by virtue of being alive. But for those who've accepted Jesus' invitation to follow him, it doesn't stop there. For us, we are called to be the imitation of Christ, to live the same kind of life Jesus lived Some of you might have noticed that together with the rest of our preaching team, um, for a good while now, we've been on a journey of intentionally trying to diversify the theological voices who shape our understanding of scripture and spirituality. And it is simultaneously exciting and humbling and convicting. On that note, another sidebar, the Regent College Bookstore is hosting a free event tomorrow on YouTube called The Black Experience in Biblical Interpretation. So if you feel like nerding out on that a little bit, uh, Terry and I are going to watch. It's on our calendar. And if you'd like to join in, it's at noon till 1.30, and I think it'll be available after, but just Google Regent Bookstore events, and it'll come up. So along that line, an important voice I recently discovered is that of Dr. Will Gaffney, Um, Listen to what she said about living as Jesus did and buckle up a bit because this is something. There is no one who is not created in the image of God. No, not one. Not Hitler, not Bin Laden. Yet at the same time, we, the imago dei, the image of God, are called to be the imitatio Christi, the imitation of Christ. Reminding us that there is an even greater space between who we are and who God is. And none of us have loved each other so much that we threaten the security of earthly kingdoms and are condemned to death because of the disruption we present to the present order. Our discipleship is just not that serious. Our love is just not that world changing. Our discipleship is not that serious. Our love is not that world-changing, but don't we want it to be? Aren't we ready for something more? And isn't our world crying out for it? For love that's deeper and wider and stronger and more sacrificial and more inviting, and haven't we always known this? Seven and eight again. Dear friends, I'm not writing you a new command, but an old one, which you've had since the beginning. This old command is the message you've heard. Yet I am writing you a new command. Its truth is seen in him and in you because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. I have to laugh a little bit at this section because what are you exactly saying, John? New? Old? What is it? So in one sense, Israel has had it from the beginning. In that way, it isn't new. I kind of feel like if Moses had heard Jesus talk about love, he would have said, that's it. That's, that's what all these commandments that I'm carrying that are really heavy all about, are all about. In another sense, as John has already said, this command is also new because it is coming into the present with Jesus himself as a gift from God's future. I think that's what the images of light and darkness are all about there. So it's both. It's old slash new. Um, I kind of wonder if someone... It might use old slash new in a future translation of of the New Testament. I'm not sure. But I kind of like this thinking out loud wasn't edited out precisely because it it causes us to ask the question, to dig deeper. In what sense is it new? In one sense, is it old? A second question we can ask of these verses are, are verses seven and eight referring to the preceding section or what follows? And I might suggest that the answer again is both. The commands summed up in the word love that we are instructed to keep are further fleshed out in what comes after. They expand on what living as Jesus did looks like in a relational context. So let's hear those again. Verses 9 to 11. Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates a brother or sister is still in the darkness. Anyone who loves their brother and sister lives in the light, and there is nothing in them to make them stumble. But anyone who hates a brother or sister is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. They do not know where they are going because the darkness has blinded them. So in this section, I want to invite us to see the connection between loving and seeing, and conversely, between hating and not seeing. First, did you hear the language of family here? It's hard to miss, brother and sister, multiple times. So who is John inviting his readers to love, to not hate their brothers and sisters? It seemed at that time, this particular Jesus community had some struggles with this, and it's a good thing we've moved past all that. Good, you're catching the sarcasm. Living as Jesus did, however, goes further. Love your enemies, he said. Now, it would be enough, and I think it would be fruitful, to just stick with the dimension John's naming here, to consider only our ongoing struggle to love those formally aligned with Jesus in the church. But I want to take some time to talk about love and hate more broadly. And let's start with hate. Because I wonder how many of us think we don't have a problem with it. I'm a Christian. I don't hate people. I love people. What is hate? Where does it come from? How does hatred get formed in us? As I've been sitting with this text, knowing it's coming for a little while, it occurred to me this could be an opportunity to bring theology into conversation with science. So I asked one of our own, Dr. Hilary McBride, to teach me about hate from a scientific perspective. And she responded by email with a clear, concise, five-point summary that I barely understood and no fewer than seven PDF attachments. So I'm just going to read those now. (laughs) I learned a lot, and one salient point was that hate is not the same as anger. Anger originates in different parts of the brain, namely those having to do with fear. Fear and anger are understood as primary emotions, hardwired into us for our survival. So they're ours, they're for us, and we're responsible to manage them. Hate, on the other hand, is more of a secondary emotion, as are things like jealousy and longing and curiosity. Now, what the scientific community thinks this means is that hatred might actually be in some cases connected to powerlessness and fear, but in others, it may just be a frustrated ability to downregulate our anger responses. Dr. McBride said it this way. Um, shout out to you, Hillary, if you're if you're paying attention, you said you might be. so hello. Um, hatred can be a way of coping with, defending against or protecting ourselves from other emotions, which we've learned to perceive through social learning theory as vulnerable, weak, and so on. Hatred might not even be an actual feeling, but a series of coordinated neurophysiological neuro-physiolo- responses to a feeling that come with action, and behavioral outputs. In short, it's a tell, a marker of our lack of ability to feel our primary feelings. And if such behavioral outputs are left unnamed and unchecked, permitted to take root and grow, then the result starts to look like the more extreme examples of hatred that we seem to be seeing in greater measure. So one of the articles she sent was a study conducted among 89 former US white supremacists. Using data from in-depth life history interviews as well as recent theories from the field of cognitive sociology, the researchers set out to examine how a rejected identity can persist despite a desire to change. What they found was that a complete disengagement from white supremacy is much easier said than done. The substantial lingering effects experienced while trying to do so were described by the subjects as addiction. Hence, the title of the piece, Addicted to Hate. Identity residual among former white supremacists. So here's the sobering conclusion of that study. The researchers said, we do not endorse the idea of once a hater, always a hater but there may be shreds of truth in this statement. Any kind of powerful identity will leave traces on the remainder of a person's life. The point is not that change is impossible, but rather transformation is never complete nor total, and some past identities linger while continuing to shape future selves. Individuals need to understand how these past identities may continue to shape their lives rather than remain unaware of these influences. So I offer this both for our awareness and our learning, but also to help us to develop our compassion muscles, both for others who struggle with hate or are even addicted to it, as well as with our own inability to love perfectly. One more thing. Hatred is deeply connected to social identity theory And this is a theory that explains how group belonging is central to our identity. The way our brains make decisions about who is in our group and who is out of our group. And how we feel about all of it. And I loved Hillary's response to this. Here's what she said. I have lots to say on shifting our propensity to hate the out group. My ideas fall generally along the lines of shifting how we feel about those we perceive as other by creating new in-groups, new in-groups, in which all humans are seen as part of our in-group. This tricks our brain into seeing connection where once we had learned to see disconnection. So instead of the way we've been socialized to see difference, the healing comes in centering what is common among us, a divine thread weaving together the fabric of humanity. Isn't that good? And doesn't that sound a lot like the one who commanded us to love our enemies? Love isn't just what Jesus taught. It was how he lived. This is how we know. Live as Jesus lived. And he showed us what loving our brothers, our sisters, even our enemies looks like. Remember that time when the disciples saw a bunch of noisy children, tried to send them away? Jesus welcomes them. Or the disciples see a crowd of hungry people, try to send them away. Jesus feeds them. Disciples see a woman of another culture and religion and ask Jesus to send her away. Jesus eventually listens to her, meets her need. A crowd refuses to show common courtesy to a social outcast named Zacchaeus. Jesus sees him up in the tree, treats him with dignity and respect. A group of prestigious people at a formal banquet look at a disreputable woman with disdain. Jesus sees her as someone who has loved much and so must be forgiven much. And when Jesus sat with his disciples near the end of his life, his final message was simple and direct and unmistakable. You are my friends. Love one another as I have loved you. So John says, you want to know God? Don't fall into the patterns of hatred, which results in a blindness and a stumbling around in the darkness, not able to see what's really there. Instead, live a life of love, learn to see people as Jesus did, made in the image and likeness of God. So how might the Spirit be inviting us to live into love during this season? I've been reflecting on this question, and I simply want to offer some of my own wonderings, followed by a poem, and then we're going to do communion COVID style. I think the roots of living into love lie with some of the stuff we spoke about last week and this week, this ongoing recognition, this remembering that we are made in the image of God, that you and I, at the very core of our being, are fundamentally loved. We can know that in our heads, but do we feel it in our bones? Are we practicing the daily knowledge of our belovedness? From my experience, it's hard to get to the place of a true gut-level embodied knowing of this unless we stop and cease activity and become quiet. Be still and know, says the psalmist. Like, know it down to your socks. I think that's going to be my new symbol. It's pointing to socks instead of my head. Do you know it? You know what I'm saying? Try it. Justin McRoberts had uh, this amazing post on REST this past week. He said, in REST, I learned to see the people I work with as whole persons. It's not work itself or even productivity that minimizes people. It is my hurry. That's only part of the post. There's a lot more where that came from if you want to check it out. And then I think there's some further concrete action we we need to consider and I wonder if part of it, so we're practicing belovedness, we're practicing being aware of our own belovedness down to our socks. There's coming, quiet, coming to quiet in order to do that. But I think there's also a frequent self-checking and asking questions of intention as Jesus invites us. What, what's my intent here, truly? Am I being, am I thinking, am I speaking hatefully? Also inviting others to call us on anything that might look like hatefulness, whether it's covert or overt or disguised as passive aggression. But of course, it's not just a matter of undoing behaviors, although that's hugely important. I think we often love our brothers and sisters best, maybe even during this time, by listening to them. Sharon Salzberg said, you can be the source of love and stability and an agent of harmony simply by extending the act of love that is listening. I also wonder whether we might take giant strides toward living into love by thinking of kindness as a spiritual practice. And that, just, that goes beyond being just Canadian. I invite you to listen contemplatively, however that looks for you, to a poem by Danusha Lameris called Small Kindnesses. And this will be sort of a closing prayer and I'll lead us to the table. I've been thinking about the way when you walk down a crowded aisle, people pull in their legs to let you by. Or how strangers still say bless you when someone sneezes, a leftover from the bubonic plague. Don't die, we are saying. And sometimes when you spill lemons from your grocery bag, someone else will help you pick them up. Mostly, we don't want to harm each other. We want to be handed our cup of coffee hot and to say thank you to the person handing it, to smile at them, and for them to smile back, for the waitress to call us honey when she sets down the bowl of clam chowder, and for the driver in the red pickup truck to let us pass. We have so little of each other now, so far from tribe and fire. Only these brief moments of exchange what if they are the true dwelling of the holy? These fleeting temples we make together when we say, Here, have my seat. Go ahead, you first. I like your hat. What if, indeed? Amen.